0: Well, good morning. That was our scripture reading or recitation today, and I hope that that motivates you to memorize God's Word also. In fact, uh, you had an assignment from last week, which was to um, begin memorizing Psalm chapter 1. You only had three verses. For a lot of excuses as to why you can't do this, uh, but a number of you did it, and so we're gonna recite it together. Um, so we're gonna do Psalm 1 together before we look into Psalm chapter 8. Okay? Let's recite it. You ready? Here we go. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So how many of you are, uh, as God is able to help you, are going to try and do the memory all the way through in the next uh, 60 days? Can I see your hand? Nice and high, nice and high, nice and proud high, proud high. I'm spiritual high. Get him up high. Okay. All right, good. All right, good. How many of you don't care? No, I mean, just just All right, well done. Hey, if you're joining us here today, first time, you're like, what in the world was that? So we're um, uh, trying to uh, memorize Psalm 1 and then uh, also Psalm 34 over the next 60 days while we're in this series on the book of Psalms. Also reading through. Uh, all 150 psalms, so uh, on the back of the manuscript, also on the website, is both a reading guide and a memorizing guide. We'd love to have you join us in that journey. All right, let's pray. Father, I love your word. I love how real it is, how um, it helps us to think correctly. It helps us to see life the way that you've made it. It's so helpful in that regard, helpful to see you and all of your beauty, and to see us. You know, all of our humanity and uh, understanding both the vertical and the horizontal elements of life help us to know not only how to live, but how to know you, how to love each other, and how to be the kind of people that you want us to be in this world. So I pray today as we look at Psalm 8 that you'd help us to get a, a full picture of the beauty of who you are so we then can understand ourselves and how we ought to respond to this great psalm. So I pray you'd help us today to hear, to listen, and Father, I pray you'd help me to use the right words, language, human tongue, English language alone isn't sufficient to capture the beauty of what is in this text, and so I pray you'd help us today, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I took my wife out on a special date, and we went to go hear the symphony. And uh, this was the first time that we had ever gone to hear the symphony in a professionally designed auditorium. We had kind of some cheap seats there up in the balcony, but you could kind of see everything, see the, the symphonic uh, group that was down there and all of the audience. And really it doesn't matter if you have cheap seats when you go to hear the symphony because you're not there to see anyway, you're there to hear and I'll never forget when, um, the conductor raised his arms and that first downbeat happened and suddenly this sound that just emanated from the platform with this huge symphony. I mean, it was, it was full. It was rich. It was vibrant. It was overwhelming as the sound just, just struck you. And I remember sitting up there hearing this beginning of a piece of Mozart and thinking in my heart, only God could create this kind of sound. I mean, just it was, a, it was a worship moment as I just heard this beautiful, beautiful music. That's not the only environment where I've heard something and thought that, uh, a little different than a symphony, but the cry of a newborn baby, eh, while not as melodious, is certainly as meaningful. After nine months of hoping, waiting and praying, seeing little arms and legs almost poke through mom's tummy, talking, you know, through the womb, We love you all these things. <laughs> then, then finally that day, remember that day arrives and, and there you are and and suddenly this new life appears and begins to cry, and there is something just beautiful about that moment, something precious. In fact I've said to my wife um, and I've said this to others. I don't know how anybody, how anybody, can witness the birth of a child and not know that God exists. I don't know how anybody can can hear that that first cry and think, "Boy, weren't we lucky?" Or think that somehow there isn't a, a Creator God that's that's out there. You see, the reality is those events in life, both the birth of a child and and the sound of a symphony, or a warm summer day or a big storm like last night, all of these things in creation are designed to be the intersection of both the divine and the human. They're designed to be the kind of moments where they take us upward and they show us who God is. They're they're designed to be a connection between our experience and the glory of God. The problem is, though, is that not everyone sees creation this way. Not everyone sees life this way through this lens. Well, David sure did. And in Psalm chapter 8, which is, by the way, the first of a number of psalms of praise, David helps us to see this intersection between the creation that he sees and the God that he loves And and what I want you leaving with today is just this renewed sense of whatever you behold and whatever you see is designed to tell you something about the beauty of God. And I'm here to tell you that if you don't understand a right relationship with God, then you really don't understand the beauty of a day. You don't understand the beauty of a birth of a child. You don't understand what you see in creation. You don't even know the beauty of what a good night's rest is if you just see it as just a good night's rest or just a beautiful day or just a storm last night. In fact, the reality is, uh, creation's design is to bring us upward. So the question is that when something makes you go, wow, who comes to mind? Because Psalm 8 is directing us upwards to God. That when you see something and go, wow, Psalm 8 wants you to go vertical and for you to say, wow, God, you are unbelievable. So that's what this psalm was all about, this, this beautiful intersection of both our life and the divine. The psalmist answers kind of that question of who comes to mind with a number of statements about a, a beautiful, sovereign creator who cares for his creation. So there's three statements I want you walking out um, both in your heart and in your mind today. And the first is that God, you are amazing. Would you say that with me? God, you are amazing. Now look at Psalm eight. Like many Psalms, it has a little bit of a contextual piece of instruction right underneath the title. So like in my Bible, it says, how majestic is your name? It's got a big eight. It's for Psalm 8. And then it says, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. So we know that it was written by David, and it says, according to the Gittith. So what's the Gittith? We have no idea what that is, okay? Nobody knows. So it's either a musical instrument, it's a tune, a special occasion, some guy's name. I don't know. No, it's not like some guy's name. But it's, it's something that helped the, the people know when they were to use this particular psalm. It serves as a, a sort of an introduction or a contextual comment, if you will. Now, look at verse 1. Verse 1 at first almost seems a bit redundant, doesn't it? O Lord, our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. And if you look down at verse 9, you'll see it again, the way the psalmist ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So this is really designed to be bookmarks, or bookends rather, between um, all the things that David is going to say. But he begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord. Might seem a bit redundant, but it actually isn't. Notice, first of all, the word Lord, the first one. Notice that it's in all capital letters. And then the second word, Lord, is not. So it's O Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and then O, all lowercase, Lord. What's, What's going on here? All the translations have it this way. Well, what's happening there is the translator is identifying something that English doesn't really show us that well. And that is that the Hebrew language had a number of different names for God. And there's one particular name in God that was unique and very special, and that is designated by capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. It's a different word than the other word for Lord that's just next to it. The first word for Lord, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The second Hebrew word is the word Adonai. So he's saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai... How majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, what's the difference? The name Yahweh is the self-revealed and sacred name of God. It was famously used by God when Moses and he had a conversation as Moses was going to go to Pharaoh, the world's superpower, and tell them, let my people go. In fact, in that moment, Moses was concerned that... People in Israel would even believe that God had sent him. And so Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? And then God gives Moses this particular name, this Yahweh name. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13, because this is a significant moment. This is the first time when God has actually said what his name is. And it's not only an important name, but it's also a gracious act that God, the creator of the universe, would identify himself with this name and tell us, and tell Moses what and who he is. So Exodus 3:13, look at it. It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the name right there. Yahweh. That's it. And he said, say to this people Israel, I am, there it is again, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. So the name Yahweh means I am. It means I am that I am. And what it does is it points to God's self-existence, to his independence, and his absolute sovereignty. I mean, think of this. God never had a beginning. He's not dependent on anyone, and he rules over all of the creation. It's the name that that symbolizes and and signifies really the essence of who God is in terms of his majesty and his power. In fact, the name is so sacred that those who would be reading this psalm would not even pronounce the actual name, but would rather instead insert the words, the name. So instead of saying, oh, Yahweh, they would say, the name, our Adonai. It had symbolism and meaning that is hard to even fully capture. Beyond the fact that the name Yahweh even means I am and how God describes himself, it's an amazing gift that God chooses to reveal himself to his people. Because here is this creator God who then condescends to Moses and says, tell them that I am who I am. He graciously reveals that he is the creator he tells Moses that he's dependent on nothing. And this name, this name Yahweh, came to represent himself and his glory and his blessing and his authority. Such that there's a lot loaded in this concept of the name In fact, Exodus 20 verse 24 says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So wherever God sets his name, like in a land or a people or a temple or an an area, he is indicating that my name comes and so does my blessing. So, when the psalmist says, O oh, Yahweh, O oh Lord, O oh, I am that I am, he is saying something like, Oh self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, grace-giving, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, and promise-keeping God. That's what he's trying to say. And he says all of that in one word. I am. I am. So this is a, this is a big... Time name, a big time word. But there's more. Even more blow, mind blowing that his name is Yahweh. He is I am that I am. He also, the psalmist says, O Lord, then it says, Our Lord. The word here is Adonai, and it is that God is not only this self existent one, but he also is one's personal master. The word Adonai means Lord, it means master, controller, it means that God is glorious beyond our comprehension, Yahweh, and it means that he is personally involved in the lives of his people. Now this is just an amazing thing that we need to understand, that that over and over the psalmist is going to make this point of really high and really low, really majestic but really cares ultimate creator, and yet personally involved. And it is this amazing breadth and width and depth of who God is that just captures and enraptures the heart of David in Psalm 8. Here is this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, grace-giving, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God, but He is our God is amazing this is all that you are but you are our adonai you are our lord you are our master you are our king you are our god so this is personal so he is i am but he's also personally involved in the life of his people notice what's next O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So again, here's this emphasis again on the word name, not the specific name, but the word name. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Meaning that the psalmist, David, is looking at the earth and he is seeing the earth through the lens, everything that he can see on the earth through this lens of God's majesty, of his glory, and that his rule, his essence, his power is on full display. So the psalmist looks around and David says, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Everything I see declares the beauty of who and what you are. That, that word majestic describes how God's name has been demonstrated. The word means Impressive, intimidating large a, a power that is visible it's uh, on display for all to see and so what David is saying is that I, I look on the earth and I, I see the the majesty of your name being declared with triumphant power that that this self existing universe creating self revealing God is not only a promise keeping god he's not only our God but everything that we see in our world declares his greatness, in other words God. You are absolutely amazing. So he's Yahweh. He is Master and Lord. He's Adonai. And his name is majestic and it's in all the earth. The question is, is do you see the earth like that? Do you see life like that? Did you see the storm last night like that? Did you go out like me and with my kids and say, watch this. Look at this cold front coming. See this? And you just go in and like, man, weather's cool. Is that what you do? Or you go in and you're like, man, God's cool. Do, do you see a beautiful sunny day and you're like, man, I'm so glad it's hot, so tired of this rainy weather? Or do you have this sense of God is the one that if the earth just spun a little bit outside of the orbit of the sun, we'd all freeze to death or burn up? I mean, is there this sense... Maybe less morbid, or maybe you could have this 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 sense: we're all gonna die, kids. If, if God doesn't care for us, I'm not saying it'd be like that. Well, maybe sometimes, but not always. But this sense that you look at life through this lens of these things are designed to tell me something about the beauty of who and what God is. Do you, do you live life like that, or do you just simply enjoy the beauty, the reality of what it means to live on Earth without ever making the connection between the creation and the Creator? Because I would tell you, if you miss that connection, you you only know half the story of what real beauty is. You you only know, you're grateful you got a, a beautiful baby boy or girl that's just been born, but you don't know the platform that that baby's supposed to create. It's supposed to take you upward to show you something even more glorious. And when you get the up and the down right, when you get the horizontal and the vertical right, then there's a great picture of the majesty and the glory of God, which is why the psalmist says the whole earth is declaring your glory. The psalmist is overwhelmed with the beauty, with the power, and the graciousness of God. He can't help himself, because when he looks at the world, he can't help but see the glory of God. The whole earth, he says, declares that, God, you are amazing. And so, through the rest of the psalm, he'll walk us through how he sees that, but with the kind of bookends of this psalm, he begins, God, you are absolutely amazing. David's desire is to take you out of your experience and lift you upward which is really good because some of you need that today. You've come and you're just so weary and you just need to be reminded that God is a in control, promise-keeping God. And you're going to walk outside today in a beautiful sunny day and that sun has come up again and it's just another reminder that there is fresh mercy, fresh grace today. God hasn't abandoned you in the past. He's not going to abandon you in the future. And you can just bank your life on the fact that, God, you are amazing. Secondly, The psalm tells us that God has been so gracious to us. Say this aloud with me, will you? God, you have been so gracious to me. Part of the beauty of what happens in the psalm is the contrast between God's amazing power and His majesty and then the grace and the kindness with which He operates. So God has this amazing power, but He's also Unbelievably kind and when you put those things together, it's just it's overwhelming to the human heart So to set the contrast up david begins by pointing us even beyond the earth He says you have set your glory above the heavens Now what he means by that is when he looks out from his vantage point he can see the stars That to him is the heavens he's on earth He sees the heavens and he says you have set your glory above the heavens Meaning, your your name is majestic in all the earth, your glory is even set beyond what I can see. So your glory is so much bigger, so much more majestic, so much more beautiful than I can possibly comprehend, that you have set your glories above a realm that I can't even see. That's what he's saying. So he's trying to get the glory of God as high and high and high as he can possibly go because in a moment he's going to go as low as he can possibly go. And it's this contrast between the height of God's glory and the lowness of his compassion that just overwhelms his heart. His glory is beyond what we can even grasp. So he wants us to see the enormity of the display of God's fame. And then notice what he does in verse 2. So, glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. There you go. Really high, glory above the heavens, as low down to infants and babes. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What's, what does he mean here? He takes us from the regions far beyond our comprehension and brings us down to babbling Incoherent speech or cries of little children, babes and infants means uh, babies and toddlers. Just put a microphone in the nursery right now. Okay, that that's that sound. So glory set above the heavens to sounds that are going on right now in the nursery. And yet, from these toddlers and infants, notice what he says. It says that you have established strength. Now, other translations, including NIV, say ordained praise. And there's a little bit of a translation challenge here. What what does it mean? It either means that God views these children through a strength metaphor, or it's the praise that comes out of their mouth that he's interested in. Regardless, either way, they both connect in the same point that God uses either the praise of children or. views views the strength of these children as the means by which he conquers his foes. So either God is defeating his foes by virtue of children's praise, or he's defeating his foes by the strength of toddlers. Either way, it's the same thing. If, If you're an army and you got beat because kids were yelling at you, or you got beat by an army of toddlers. It's pretty much the same thing. Okay, either way. So that's that's the point. His point is is that God, who's infinite and has set his glory above the heavens, uses weak and powerless elements on the earth in order to defeat his enemies and his foes. That David is. Contrasting God's incredible might with the fact that he is able to defeat his enemies with weak and helpless creatures that the young children are a sufficient army In the hands of a powerful God It's a remarkable statement and it is it must be what david has in mind because he knows this firsthand So if you grew up in church right now, there's a song going through your head It goes like this only a boy named david only a little sling. Stream? What was it? Stream. Anyways, long time. Uh, see, He took five stones, right? And one little stone went up in the air. What happened? And the giant came tumbling down. What well, we're singing, trying to anyways, is the story of David and Goliath. That this giant comes and is conquered by a little boy. So what's the point of the story of David and Goliath? Is it that... It's a call for you to conquer your giants. Whatever giant you have in your life, go conquer them. Take the five stones of faith and the word of God and the belief in His promises. Is that what the story of David and Goliath is about? No, it's not. You know what the story of David and Goliath is about? It's about the fact that there is a sovereign God. That when you send out your goon who curses His name, yeah, God sends kids who kill you. I mean, that—that's God is not limited by. <laughs> that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That's a. Uh, let me let me rephrase that, okay? So <clears throat> that when you curse God, he's not limited by a strong army. He can send a kid out to take his vengeance. That sounds a little better, doesn't it? A little more spiritual. Let me, let me show you this. Look at first Samuel seventeen. First Samuel seventeen. This is when David comes out to meet the um Goliath, this this prized warrior of the Philistine army. And when we read the story, you'll you'll get a sense that our little song of um, only a boy named David, only a little sling, is not entirely complete. We probably should have added a a second or third verse. Because verse 45 says, this is 1 Samuel 17, Then David said to the Philistine, So this is David, the little little boy, talking to probably a nine-foot goon of a warrior. You come to me with a sword and with a spear. Actually, let me do this in a little kid's voice. You, say, you come to me with a sword and a spear. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is what happened, right? There's this goon with a big spear. And here's a little boy getting in his face, right up in his grill. He's like, key yeah, right? So he says, you come to me with a sword and spear, but javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. You have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. That we miss that part in the Bible story, don't we? So, it, it should be, you know. And the giant came tumbling down, and they cut off his head. We should add that. So, that would make the that would make uh, the the flannel graphs a little interesting, wouldn't it? So actually there's more look at there's more and i will give the dead bodies of the host of the philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth i mean so we got dead bodies on the flannel graph can you see it you know and birds and all that a little too graphic What did you guys learn in Sunday school today? You don't want to know, Mom. It's bad, bad, bad stuff. And then notice the point. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's what David's talking about in Psalm 8. He's talking about the fact that God can use a little boy to take down a big giant, and it's not about simply you defeating your giants. It's about the fact that when the creator of the universe is on your side, he is not limited by weakness or somehow limitations. God loves to display his glory in the arena of human frailty. God graciously gives power to those who are naturally weak. So the beautiful thing about this psalm is it says, "Gods, you are amazing, but it also means that you are incredibly gracious to me. So maybe you come here to church today and you just feel like, man, nah, I'm like an empty bucket. i got nothing. This is a great moment for you to realize that that's the, sometimes the best place in the world to be because that's when God can fill you up and you know that this power is not coming from you. It is coming from the creator of the universe who's empowering your actions. The theme is then repeated in verses 3 and 4. Psalmist looks up to the heavens. Here it is again. He sees the moon and the stars. Look at what it says in verse 3. He says, when I consider your heavens, again, he goes way up, the heavens, the work of your fingers, meaning the creation of the world is like finger painting to God. The moon and the stars which you have set in place, then way down low again. So, when I consider your heavens, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So he's amazed at the creative power of God, and now he is just enthralled with the fact that God would care about insignificant human beings. It's as though he looks at the universe and he says, God, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you made, why do you even care for me? Why are you even concerned about me? We are so helpless and dependent. It's as though David is overwhelmed with the contrast of God's incredible power and yet his incredible personal grace. And isn't that what you love about God? I mean, isn't that what you cling to in the midst of hard seasons? God, you are almighty and you are powerful and you know exactly what's going on in my world. You care for me. The commentator said it this way in spite of the incredible chasm chasm that separates humans and their god little sidebar you want to know what god is like that where you start is he is not like you the bigger god becomes the more gracious you will understand how he is and the happier you will be don't make god small make him big make him really big so that humans appear as but minuscule specks of dust on a rock revolving around one of thousands of stars in but one of countless galaxies flung across the universe, God is still mindful of humans and has the will, purpose, and incredible gifting for our lives. In a world of human kings, a peasant subject might languish unknown and uncared for in the furthest reaches of the empire, but Yahweh remains mindful of all those whom he has made for a purpose. God, you have been so gracious to me. See, this is what happens when you behold the beauty of God. This is why I love theology. Because when God becomes big, when you understand who He is, you not only understand what He is like, but you understand how gracious and kind He has been. This is why you have to love the Bible, because the more that you understand about what God is like, the more you understand how unbelievably kind He has been, especially when you understand that He has been kind to sinful, rebellious human beings. And what's remarkable is that when David writes this psalm, he doesn't even know half the story. He doesn't, he, he thinks heaven, when I consider your heavens, what is a man that you are mindful of him? Well, in the New Testament, we're gonna see that come on in a whole different perspective where we see this creator God who has been sinned against, he comes down and becomes mankind. He becomes flesh and blood and then dies in order to pay the penalty for sin to redeem his creation back to himself. And this, you're unbelievably high, you went unbelievably low, is the essence of what grace is. It's the heart, really, of what the gospel is. In fact, the writer John, in the New Testament, captures this. Look at what he says. In the beginning was the Word. Notice how how big, how up, how high he's going to go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he's the center. He's everything. Everything comes through him. Everything's for him. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning. He was there. He is it. That's what John is saying. This is the way he starts. And then, we skip ahead to verse 14 and 16. The Word became flesh. So, God's way, way, way high, and then He goes way low. The Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, last part of verse 16. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Notice again, he's high and high, he comes low, he's mighty, and yet we receive grace upon grace. And then here comes the good news, the gospel. But he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own. That word literally means he came to his own things. The creator comes, becomes like his creatures, he comes to his own creation, and his own creation rejects him. His own people did not receive Him. Worse, they killed Him. And yet it is grace, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. And then bringing it back full circle, unless you think it was something that you did, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It comes full circle. God starts, He condescends, He redeems. How did all this happen? God. God at the beginning, God at the end, you in the middle, just enamored with the beauty of what God is and for you through the person of Christ. So when you understand the full-orbed reality that David could only understand in part then you become even more amazed at God's graciousness to you. In fact, it's overwhelming when you think that this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, always-existing, never-ending nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping, God not only cares for you, He cares enough that He sends His Son to become a man who dies to pay for your sin. That is beyond belief. It's beyond belief. To understand the mystery of grace should make you agree with the psalmist that you would say, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, you should say, God, why did you ever save me? Why? And the minute that you get over that thought, you are on a dangerous path. Because you are so incredibly amazing and you have been unbelievably gracious. So the goal when you spend time in the Word is to get God in your mind up and to get you low. It's to get the beauty of God exalted and for you to get yourself in the right place underneath that. For you to read in the Word and say, yes, God, you are amazing and I am awful and sinful and I've got nothing but your grace. And the contrast between God and you is the essence of what it means to grow in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then finally, finally, it is that we discover that the psalmist says that everything we have is a gift from you. It says you made him ruler over the works of your hands. Or verse 5, excuse me. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with honor and glory, or glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Notice here that it says, that everything that we have is a gift from God. Unlike any other creature on the planet, human beings are made in the image of God. So when he says here, you made him little lower than heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. This image of God thing is a really important element. It's an ontological reality. It means it's a being reality. You are the image of God. Children are the image of God elderly people are the image of God. It's an essence of what it means for you to be in this world. And that means that the smallest cell, little zygote in a mother's womb is also imprinted with the image of God. Even though it can't function outside of that womb, it is image, and therefore it is a life. Biblically defined, that is a life created in the image of God, an ontological reality, not just a functional reality. A person who's old and can't function like they used to even in a comatose state is still an image bearer even though they can't function like everyone else in the world and that image is a beautiful and sacred thing that image makes you different than everything else in creation it makes you different than your dog so you love your kids but love your kids more than your dog your dog may be great but your dog doesn't have a soul The snake, you can kill the snake without, unless it's endangered, without a lot of uh, recourse. But you kill a person, there's a difference. Why? Because there's a difference between snakes and humans. And it's crazy, but in our culture, we have to tell people that. There's a difference between creation and people. People are imprinted with the image of God. He says, You crowned him with glory and honor. And then he says, You put all things under his feet. Notice the focus. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. Notice who owns it. And who did it? He did it. You made Him ruler. You put everything under His feet. All flocks and herds, beasts, birds, fish, everything that swims through the paths of the sea. What does this mean? It means that God is the one who provided all of these gifts. To have dominion over something, put it underneath one's feet, means that God gives sometimes positions of authority. Personally, family, church, government, legal But what you need to know is all authority is derived, it's given by God. So some of you have been incredibly successful in your life. You've got the high positions, you've made a lot of money, or you've got a a thing where you're now in charge of people. I just want to remind you, you only have that because of God's good grace. So yeah, you may have done some things to get there, but fundamentally the stuff that you did in order to get there were all gifts from God. And woe be to the man or the woman who for a moment thinks, I did this, I made myself, you didn't make yourself. You didn't do it. Oh yeah, you worked hard, you were disciplined, but at the end of the day, the the heart that you have that's beating, the mind that fires, the talents that you've been given, those things come from a gracious and good God who has given you those abilities. There are His gifts, and He's the one that gives them. Everything I have is a gift from you. By the way, this is why you you pray before a meal. Do you know why you pray before a meal? Not because it's tradition. Because everything you have in front of you on that plate is a gift from God. Without God's sustaining grace, you wouldn't have food to eat. The only reason you have chicken on your plate is because God at one time caused the chicken to be born to a mommy and a daddy chicken. And that chicken got in the wrong pen, and then some farmer came, took it, and killed it, and put it on a bus. And that bus got to Meyers, so it got to that grocery store that you bought with money that God gave you from the job that you earned because you've got talents and gifts from God and that you brought it and put it on your plate with a gas grill that you bought with that hard-earned money and skills that you learned from your dad how to cook chicken and there you are sitting there and you're eating a meal in a house that thank God didn't get struck by lightning last night and the only reason you're there is because of the good grace of God so you thank him for this meal thank you God you didn't kill us last night you gave us chicken and you got all these things that are here right now that's how you pray That everything you have is from God. It's all a gift. Don't, don't thank God you didn't kill it. life. Don't tell your kids that. Just, just pray thanks for the food. But you understand the point. Such that you should be able to say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because everything we have, we have from you. Now where does this lead us? Three things. The first is this. College Park, Look at life theologically. Look at life theologically, how how sad it must be to listen to a piece of music, how sad, how tragic it is to behold the birth of a baby and think, oh, that's beautiful, but it's just by luck, or by chance, or by fate. To see life this way is not only disappointing, it's half-hearted living, it's to miss the beauty of God. Therefore, I want you to remember that everything in this world is not meant to be a creative cul-de-sac where it just terminates on itself. It's meant to be a conduit that points you upward. Everything in life was meant to be something that turns you towards God, to be reminded of the beauty of who He is. So enjoy the blessings of God. Man, enjoy the beauty of this day that's coming on the Lord's Day, but don't ever forget that this is designed to point you upward. Its purpose is to be a platform of praise to a great God. Secondly, my goodness, we have to look at ourselves humbly. Humbly. When you understand God in all of this glory, how tragic and silly and foolish and almost idiotic it would be to, to make something of ourselves. A right understanding of this psalm should bring us to our knees that anything that we do that's good, any blessing or any success that we have only comes because of a gracious, kind God. How awful to have a heart filled with self-praise or pride when everything you have, including the mind that thinks such wicked things, is only doing its work because of the good graces of a Heavenly Father. Therefore, we must think humbly about ourselves. And finally, the psalm calls us to look to Jesus solely. The writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 as a platform in his argument regarding the importance of the work of Jesus. Can you believe that? He uses Psalm 8 to talk about Jesus' understanding, his humanity, his suffering, his endurance. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, the writer of Hebrews summarizes the identification of Jesus with mankind and says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. In other words... While the heavens declare the glory of God, and while he has set his glory above the heavens, and while God ordains strength from the mouths of infants and babes, if you want to see the most glorious demonstration of the majesty and the mercy of God, if you want to see the contrast between might and mercy, between power and grace, you need look no further than the ultimate example of what happened to Jesus. Because here is the Son of God, the Creator, who comes and bears the penalty of sin. It is in the life of Christ that we see this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God come to earth and bear the sins of awful, wicked, rebellious, sinful people. Nothing could be more worthy of praise than that and that means if you don't know jesus you don't know what real beauty is but when he gets in the picture suddenly the whole world changes such that you would sing and say this psalm not just "O oh lord our lord but you would say "O oh jesus our jesus how majestic is your name In all the earth, because there's no greater example of God's majesty and his mercy than the intersection of Christ in the earth. So, Father, thank you that you give us all good things. Thank you that you've developed so many conduits on earth to remind us of your mercy. And I pray that today you would deal with us over perhaps our pride, how easily it is for us to forget. Some of us, the issue with our pride is not what we do overtly, it's the neglect of real gratitude. Or Father, thank you today that your word helps us to bring us upward because there's some who needed to be here today just to simply know that you're in control and you've you've got it, you're a promise-keeping God. And Father, others who, in hearing this message today, need to, come to terms with the fact that they don't see what real beauty is because they don't know the reality of your son. So thank you, Jesus, that your name is majestic above all other names over all the earth because there's no one more full of mercy or majesty than you. So thank you for the beauty of who you are and the authority of your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need to pray with somebody, got some folks up here afterwards. They're here to be able to help you, encourage you in some way, okay? They're here for you to use, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.